1: It's time for another political rewind I'm Bill Igge. And as always, I'm so glad that you are joining us for today's show.'ve got a great panel that I want to get right on the, uh, on the air to talk about all the news that's uh, developing around politics today. Uh, Jim Galloway, Former uh, political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is with us on this Wednesday. Typically, Greg Bluestein time slot. Greg took a couple days off to be with his uh, wife and uh, Galloway. Graciously agreed to do the show today. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing great. Always happy to pinch hit here. Yeah no well you well you know you're on every Monday too so let's not forget that. By the way Jim Galloway I do have to say this is l- your daughter Carol and my wife Janice and I we are all living big lives right now because we are all huge fans of the Tour de France. Your daughter writes about it, she blogs about it regularly and I was uh, watching it's been I was watching
2: I was watching the, the first of the double climbs just before we came on. Oh,
1: I, oh okay. I haven't, Don't say anything. I've got it on tape. But Mark Cavendish is on his way to setting a record for a, stage, uh, to, a lifetime stage wins. It's a really thrilling race that uh, um, Carol is just terrific in writing about. So thank you, Jim, for uh, being here. Uh, professor Andra Gillespie joins us. You know Professor Gillespie. She is political science professor and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andra, are you watching sports this uh, summer? Do you have a sport that you follow, or are you too busy for that stuff?
3: I am a casual observer of sports, so I wouldn't say die hard, but you could get me to watch a tennis match if it happened to be on TV when I was flipping through.
1: Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you for being with us uh, today. Mary Margaret Oliver is uh, here as well. Of course, she uh, represents Decatur in the state house. Mary Margaret, how are you doing?
0: I'm great. Good morning. Bill, one of your fans, my book club member, Margaret, has come to babysit the dog, so Henry will not bark during the show. I to tell Sam i have um. trying to correct that problem.
1: Mary Margaret, we're very grateful to you for that. By the way, you're more of an active sports person. You're out on the golf course quite a bit in the warm weather.
0: I really enjoyed this weekend up at the mountains. I've been following the Olympic trials, and Bruce Springsteen's daughter made the equestrian Olympic team this week. So we're pulling for oh. her and all the Olympics.
1: Oh, I didn't see that. That's really interesting. Edward She Lindsay has been a, is a, been
0: a competitor for a good while. She was an alternate on the 2012 team, so she's a serious competitor, and I'm happy that she's made the full team this year.
1: And, and what's her name? Her name, forgive me,
0: is Miss Springsteen. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: Uh, thank you for that. Edward Lindsay is with us, and uh, Edward, a former state legislator, state house member, uh, who represented Atlanta, now a partner at the world's largest law firm, Denton's, where he oversees the state of Georgia's government affairs team. Edward, you're joining us from a little break in your schedule. Thanks for doing that.
4: I, I am. Uh, just a little uh, 4th of July break, but, uh, but always happy to be on the show with you.
1: And uh, we're glad. Yeah. And we're glad you're here for that. Jim Galloway, let's get started on um, the financial disclosure uh, report that we saw from uh, Governor Kemp the other day. Uh, He has already raised with well over a year. Well, he's got a primary coming up in less than a year now, assuming uh, uh, that there's a legitimate challenge to him. But uh, he does have a primary contender. He's raised 12 million dollars. Dollars so far, he's got nine plus million in the bank, cash on hand, and in just the last reporting period, last three months, raised almost four million dollars. Uh, that, that that's a serious signal, I think, to uh, some yeah, of the people who might be looking to get in the race so that they better be careful. Right.
2: It's it, 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 and it says a couple things. Number one, it's uh, uh, it's it's uh double or three times uh, what uh, Roy Barnes, Sonny Perdue, Nathan Deal, and past governors have raised as of this period, uh, but it also, you, you don't raise that kind of money unless you think you have to use it, uh, and, and, and Brian Kemp could become, it's, it's, it's not there yet, as he said, it, he could become the first uh, Republican governor to face a, a serious primary challenge uh, next year, And so he's uh, uh, he's 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 behaving accordingly. I think also to me it's 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 noteworthy that he's built up a list of financial supporters who aren't on board the the Trump train. They would they would Mm -hmm. prefer to see somebody who's who's not who's less beholden to Trump uh, in in charge of Georgia government. And I do think that says something on the Republican side.
1: Yeah. Um, Edward, I would uh, I understand that Jim's perspective on this is that he's raising a lot of money because he thinks he's going to need it. But I would suggest a different uh, uh, interpretation of that might also be applicable. Um, he's known for quite a long time that he's a target of Donald Trump and the Trump supporters out there, some of whom are Georgia re- Republicans. Um, and so— Raising as much money as he had, it does feel to, has it feels to me, as I said, like an effort to try to brush other people back to say, "Watch out, I've got I've, I've got a powerful uh, 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 war chest to do battle with." Well, it's a you know it,
4: it's a two for here. Uh, a basic political uh, principle is that the best way to avoid a, a tough primary challenge, in particular is to raise a lot of money <laughs> and to make uh, more serious-minded uh, opponents uh, think twice before they, uh, they want to enter the ring. Um, and as more time elapses, it becomes less and less likely, he's going to face a, a serious primary challenge. Uh, just the number of folks out there who could, at this late hour, step into the ring and raise a sufficient amount of money to challenge him in a primary becomes more and more uh, difficult to see. But it's also getting back to, to Jim's uh, other point. The fact of the matter is he's going to need it in, in the general election. Uh, the days in which one party or the other uh, dominates Georgia politics to the extent that you could brush aside uh, casually uh, the other political party in the general election are long since over. Um, you know, the, the, the governor understands that this is going to be a tough fight in November 2022 and is preparing accordingly.
3: I, I agree with uh, what Edward and Jim have both said. The, the, the one thing that I will add to this is, um, is that I think what this demonstrates, in addition to the fact that it shows that Governor Kemp is competitive and preparing himself to wage a fight both at the primary level and at the general level, but I think it also says something about what the importance of a Donald Trump endorsement is. Um, and so a Donald Trump endorsement is not sufficient to win an election. Um, And I would argue it may not even be necessary in some instances, and we'll have to empirically test that a little bit more. But there are lots of other people running around the country who are still really busy trying to attach themselves to Donald Trump in ways that seem contrived and and not particularly healthy without realizing that you have to have the fundamentals. So you have to have organization, you have to have widespread support, you have to have a campaign finance infrastructure. And so what Governor Kemp is showing is that he has all of those fundamentals. And so, yeah, Donald Trump doesn't like him, um, but that doesn't mean that Donald Trump necessarily has the juice to be able to push him out, especially if, and I'm only projecting because Rudy Giuliani has been here in the state uh, with Vernon Jones, your option is Vernon Jones, who has a lot of weaknesses that would make him um, perhaps a, a weaker candidate at the primary level. We would have to wait to see what would happen there.
0: What's discouraging to me is that uh, candidates, particularly incumbents in Georgia, which is a pivotal state, as we all know, are going to have unlimited money. Unlimited money is the rule. It seems to be now, particularly for Republican candidates, and that's fairly discouraging to me. But it's also true, as a practical matter, that there is at least one possible candidate out there, Burt Jones, who the rumor is looking also at the governor's race, and he comes with personal money, of extensive, extensive personal money. So you can argue that they're putting this money together because they need it. You can argue that um, he started early because he understands the lay of the land. But I think the bigger picture is candidates, Republican incumbent candidates, are going to have unlimited money from here on after. And that's simply a, a very distressing fact to me.
1: Mary Margaret, as long as the ball's in your court, uh, let me keep it there for another minute. Uh, wh- what, do we, what do we think is going to be the timing? For the presumed bid that Stacey Abrams will make uh, uh, for the governor's seat, uh, is she can she wait till the end of the year? Uh, I mean, she can she has the ability to raise unlimited uh, resources, money, and she's already extremely well known. But is there going to come a time when Democrats are going to start getting itchy to see her get in to the race?
0: I don't have inside information on her strategy, but what I am clear about is that she always has a strategy, and her strategy is almost always successful from my perspective. Uh, She has greater name recognition than any candidate, and she has, I think, again, very strong, perhaps unlimited fundraising ability. Her strategy is something that will be, uh, in my view, a successful strategy. I doubt that she waits till the end of the year. I think she may have finished her book tour at this point, uh, and the selling of the book rights for successors and Netflix sales. And I think that was a priority for her this summer, uh, a successful rollout of her book. Um, what her timing is, uh, is part of her strategy, and I trust her to implement a successful strategy
2: yeah yeah it's it's but but on the other hand i i think a lot more uh, you have quite a few democrats who would like a, a little uh, firmness about the future they would like they would like to see her announce as early as possible just to to know that she has that, that they have somebody in that slot and they're not going to be left scrambling at at the, at the last minute and I, I i i would also argue that uh, that uh, the recent court, uh, Supreme Court decision on on the Voting Rights Act, uh, and and uh, the debate over SB 202 kind of make uh, this summer a, a perfect time to jump into this contest.
1: Mm. That's that's an interesting perspective, Andra and then Edward. You both. I'm going to ask you both to play to some extent political consultants for a moment here. So let's look at the what's coming up. Jim Galloway just points out about the uh, the Supreme Court decision on the Arizona voting ca- election case. We're going to talk about that in a little while. Um, and maybe this is the time to make a move. On the other hand, toward the end of the year, the legislature will start its reapportionment session, which is going to be hotly controversial and command and headlines. Andra, do you... What do you think about timing? Do you want to be an announced candidate before that reapportionment session starts? So you're approaching it and talking about it from the, as a candidate for governor? How do you, does it play a role at all, do you think?
3: Um, well, for on the Democratic side, for Stacey Abrams in particular, I don't think yeah. it plays a role at all. It's not like she's looking at whether or not she's in a district that's going to get redrawn and it's going to be unfavorable right. to her. Not that that would have right. happened in her district, but you know, uh, for sitting state uh, legislators, right, that is an issue. I think Stacey Abrams has her choice about when she uh, chooses to run. Everybody on the Democratic side pretty much presumes that she is going to run for office and that if she were to run, she would win the Democratic primary. You know, I think it's just a question of courtesy. So if there is any doubt in her head about whether or not she plans on running, I think that, you know, if that were the case, if I were advising her, I would tell her, look, you need to make up your mind pretty quickly because you're going to limit the ability of whoever would run for this office to be able to mount an organization and do all the fundraising and things that they need to be able to do it. But assuming that she does plan on running, she can wait until the last minute and it wouldn't affect her at all.
1: Yeah, Uh, Edward, of course, I I wasn't suggesting that uh, she she has anything to worry about in redistricting herself, but she's got a lot of clout to lend to Democrats who want to either protect their incumbency with the district lines or want to jump into certain districts. And I just wonder if there's any advantage to her already being a declared candidate as she tries to give them that help.
3: And I don't think yeah, I I think that that I don't think it matters one way or the other whether she's declared or not.
4: Okay. I I would agree with that. Um, You know, in terms of Stacey, it doesn't really play. It does, however, to sort of pick up on what Mary Margaret was saying, it does play heavily in terms of easing a lot of concerns by state Democrats who are having to deal with the issue of redistricting this fall. And they've got a lot on their plate with that. And it would be a lot easier for them if they knew that they didn't also have to start scrambling to find another gubernatorial candidate. So from the standpoint of taking care of your party, uh, I think uh, now is the time for her to announce. But in terms of what she would need in terms of mounting a serious campaign, uh, you know, she can afford to wait. And and as you mentioned, she's going to be able to raise uh, an unlimited amount of money uh, based on her state and, and national contacts. So that's not a serious concern for her. But in terms of, of tamping down any, any resentment within the state party. And she's had that some of that historically. Uh, now is the time for her to step in and go, guys, I've got this. I've got the gubernatorial race. Y'all go focus on
0: redistricting. The Republican message, the rumors that the Republican messaging is about is that she's not going to run. That um, they want to say she's gone Hollywood, that she's not interested in Georgia, and that she's not going to run. That's, that's a false message that's not traveling anywhere. I think the word courtesy that Andre used is an important word. I do think it's on all of our minds um, that we all want to begin um, a campaign, a successful campaign for her. But I do believe there are alternatives out there that are ready in the very, very remote possibility that she doesn't get into this race, I would say, before Halloween, maybe Labor Day. That's a guess on my part. I think that she is poised to be a very unique, very successful candidate. Her strategy is always a successful strategy, in my view. Uh, She's running, and I think she has a very strong chance to win.
1: Jim, before we get off the subject of a governor's race, let me go back to the Republican side for just a minute here. Um, We, you know, we've now had Corey Lewandowski— uh, Rudolph Giuliani, other Trump supporters, uh, ad- allies, uh, talking about a significant challenger emerging to take on Brian Kemp on the Republican side. There's, but there's been no movement that we're aware of in that direction at all. And this past weekend, up in your neck of the woods, Jim, the Cobb County Republican Party had uh, an, an event, uh, uh, Fourth of July event, mm-hmm. And it 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 was sort of an interesting um, mixed blessing for Brian Kemp when he took the stage. He got a lot of boos, but then he went on to win the straw poll well uh, over uh, Vernon Jones, who was also at the event and gave his uh, uh, remarks to the crowd. So sort of a mixed message there uh, to Kemp. Although, you know, it's hard to figure out how much we put how much value we put in straw polls. Well look
2: I, I would I would number one I would argue that the the Cobb County GOP straw poll uh on the 4th of 4th of July it was I think it was on Saturday the 3rd uh is mm-hmm. is uh is a very good indicator uh, of the base and I think I I think that there are qualms uh among among uh the base uh, the, the, a Trump oriented base but uh, I think in in the end they they, they go home to Kemp. Uh, you know, you you bring up the uh, G- Rudy Giuliani and and uh, and uh, Corey Lewandowski, it, it 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 does show a, a certain detamp- detachment in in the Trump machine when it comes to Georgia politics. I mean, this is the the, the their their search for a, a a gubernatorial candidate is kind of the flip side of of the, their actions on the U.S. Senate side, where they're trying to drive Herschel Walker in, uh, who who is who has yet. Who really has no connections with the state?
4: Well, the fact yeah. of the matter is that uh, the the two uh, U.S. Senate runoff races in January was a huge wake-up call uh, for the uh, for the GOP base. Um, they may they may be ticked off. Some of them may still be ticked off at the governor, uh, and and may still want to to align closely with President Trump. But they're facing a, a very serious, tough battle in 2022. Uh, you know, you know, I, I disagree a little bit with with Mary Margaret Oliver. Yes, there are a few Republicans out there who speculate that that uh, Stacey Abrams isn't going to run. But anyone seriously looking at it is assuming that she is going to run, and that we all know she will be a formidable candidate. So that helps a lot of folks. One of a better term, get in line. Uh, you may not be totally in love uh, with everything that uh, Brian Kent ha- has done. You may uh, like uh, President Trump, and you may be ticked that somehow he didn't win that election. But the bottom line is uh, they know that Stacey Abrams is coming. They know that Stacey Abrams is going to be an extremely formidable candidate. And if, and the only way they're going to hold the governor's mansion Uh, in 2022 is if uh, they unite. Uh, But this unity that we saw uh, last January is simply a recipe for disaster for Republicans. And I think most of Um, the base has come to understand that.
1: I I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Edward. All right, Edward, uh, right before we take a break, how much money is it going to take to uh, win this race? Just give us a ballpark. What do you think? Are we talking about... (laughs) $30 Thirty million dollar per candidate? I mean, what? How much money is going to be Only dumped this into one. this you, governor's race? It, it takes. Race? It gets back to, to what um, Andre was saying earlier. It's it's
4: money, but it's also organization. You're gonna. It's going to take thirty to fifty million dollars, uh, probably, to, to launch a formidable race. But even more importantly, it's going to take a, a a a strong ground campaign. I oftentimes think folks focus way too much. On the amount of dollars and the amount of television that takes place, I always want to take a look at who has the strongest ground campaign. Because you show me who has the strongest ground campaign, provided they have they have sort of a, a that that core base money, that's the candidate I think is going to win. Uh, and if you if you have that, then then you're going to be competitive and you got a great chance. So I'm going to be looking uh, a lot at who's who's running the better ground campaign.
3: I I completely agree, and it gets back to that conversation about fundamentals versus what Trump says. If people have the fundamentals, they can surmount a challenge by Donald Trump. Um, And so I think we're focusing on sometimes superficial things and the wrong things. And and this leads into what I kind of want to say about about strategy here. So, yeah, okay, Rudy Giuliani and Corey Lewandowski, like, you know, are trying to put their chips on people like Vernon Jones and – um and and herschel walker but let's call the strategy out for what it is and and take the quiet part and make it loud here so you have Black candidates running on the Democratic side, and so you just found a warm Black Republican body to put up against them, regardless of their qualifications and regardless of whether or not these folks are problematic, right? And you think that that is enough because of hyper-partisanship to kind of keep everything in line so that you can meet the charge of racism here. And it's like, yeah, that's tokenism at its best, and it's just not good, and I just don't think that it's strategic. And I think we have to sometimes call out the Trump camp for one bluffing all the time and just call them out for like perhaps doing things that don't make any sense. And then also for overpromising and under-delivering in, in this particular instance. And so I think we should call it out for the folly that it is.
0: The, the strategy of a Vernon Jones uh, somehow helping, it, it's just a, a bizarre strategy. If you've ever had any dealings uh, in a practical way with Vernon Jones, I think the real Threat to Kemp is Bert Jones. That's that's who I think the threat is. And the rest of this is is cynical. Advance. That's the f- best thing I can say about a Vern Jones or Denowski. It's just a cynical kind of strategy. Ground game matters. Uh, Roy Barnes lost with his 40 million dollars to Sonny Perdue because of ground game. Nobody has forgotten that. I don't believe.
1: All right. Um, thank you for that conversation, everybody. Why don't we get a break out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. <music> Professor Andre Gillespie, Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, Jim Galloway, join me on today's Political Rewind. Um, Jim, let's talk about gun violence and its role in the uh, Elections as it's going to unfold in the year-plus ahead Um, We know that across the country this weekend 189 people were shot and killed in gun incidents The case here in Georgia that got so much attention was up in Kennesaw at a golf club where the pro at the club a man named Gene Siller was shot down apparently on, on the golf course apparently Uh, While he stumbled across, without having any idea what he was getting into, a a crime unfolding, Uh, a pickup truck had gotten stuck on the course. He went out to investigate, and uh, he was shot and killed. Police subsequently found two more bodies in the bed of the pickup truck. Um, And, of course, we've had other murders in Metro Atlanta over the weekend as well. I, I want to I pair that with, if you'll give me just another second, because I want to put this into a political context, if, if I may. Um, here's how the New York Times this morning reported on Eric Adams' success at winning the Democratic nomination, now we know he's won, for mayor of New York. The apparent victory of Mr. Adams, who embraces a relatively expansive role for law enforcement in promoting public safety, amounts to a rebuke of the left wing of his party that promoted far-reaching efforts to scale back the power of the police. The race was a vital, if imperfect, test of democratic attitudes around crime amid a national wave of gun violence in American cities. Okay, and that said, Jim, of course... Violent crime is the number one issue in the uh, mayor's race as well But it's Republicans and Democrats are positioning themselves and trying to figure out where they are What position Democrats particularly how they're going to take their stand on this issue of of pol- of Policing the community
2: Right, and it's it, it's for Democrats. It's it's uh, it's, it's a delicate balance uh, between between uh, uh, police uh, uh, curbing police excesses, and recognizing the fact that you have large urban constituencies who are very very concerned with public safety and are most affected by uh, by these out this, this outbreaks uh, 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 these outbreaks of, of violence. In here in Georgia, you, you've seen you've seen the uh, governor Kemp kind of emphasize the situation in Atlanta, but I think the shooting in Cobb uh in an area where i was house hunting only 2 months ago i mean i was right on the golf course or right, uh, probably near the 10th uh the 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 10th the hole it's you know it's it's uh it, this is this is a this is another form of pandemic that's hitting every community not just not just atlanta it's it's happening all over all over atlanta uh, i mean all over metro atlanta uh, gwinnett DeKalb. uh uh, even, even, even in, in uh, rural areas of Georgia,
0: the golf course bizarre triple murder, uh, the death of a young father at the gates of the Capital City Club, uh, strike the folks of us that live in nice neighborhoods in a different way than the fifteen year old in the apartment complex and a in a poor neighborhood and the or the 16-year-old gangs of 50 50 teenagers somewhere last week getting in a melee with a gun. It is a very serious discussion this year. Um, Atlanta is an example of where the serious discussion will be carried out, and obviously New York City was an example. I have said publicly a good number of times, that I'm very sad to report, that the discussion around gun violence is worse, more political, more partisan than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you had serious bipartisan discussions. Gun um, rights was, was always the pre- prevalent political view uh, 20 years ago, but it was a serious discussion about gun safety. We had serious discussions about child locks, about sale of multiple handguns. We have no discussion today in Georgia. Can't speak for the city of Atlanta. Can't speak for the city of New York. We have no no discussion about curbing gun violence in the Georgia General Assembly. It is a totally third rail, don't talk about it, don't talk about it. Despite the fact that I am 100% convinced and I think that my panel members probably agree that real people support basic reforms like universal uh, checks, criminal checks, support uh, reforms like eliminating the five year limitation on studying uh, mental health records. Uh, it's very distressing to me. We have no discussion of gun violence, but we are about to enter campaigns across the country where gun violence is going to be discussed in a perhaps in a non serious way, perhaps in the continuation of partisan, partisanship and Second Amendment arguments that aren't relevant to the real world today.
1: So um, I, let me uh, frame this again, if I might, Andra, Let me come to you and then to Edward on this. So, on one hand, the Eric Adams victory seems to suggest, especially uh, winning against Maya Wiley, who is a much more progressive liberal uh, candidate than Eric Adams was. Um, Eric Adams, former law enforcement, he says we got to get, we do have to get tough. We need to beef up our law enforcement agencies. Um, Whereas we know there are progressive Democrats who still believed resources should be diverted away from police departments, perhaps to social service functions. I get all that. So that's the Democratic side of all this. We've also got the president now calling for pretty modest uh, gun safety measures and Republicans attacking him as attempting to undo the uh, Second Amendment. All of this is in the mix as we head to the 2022 election cycle, and you and Edward can take it apart any way you want to. Andra?
3: Well, I mean, I think that this is a function of growth oversimplification in an attempt to win political points. So, um, you know, when we talk about the notion of gun safety, we can point to public opinion that shows widespread support for many common sense gun safety measures, but that these things languish in... Um, language in, in, in legislatures because the politicians don't agree with this because they are worried about the gun lobby um, or because they're worried about something else or, uh, you know, that, that, that is inhibiting what's going on. And so we're going to have to have a, a discussion about how hyper partisanship. And about perhaps the undue influence um, of, of certain interest groups has you know really hijacked our, our ability to be able to do common sense things that will keep guns out of the hands of angry people, unstable people, and people who are too young to accept the responsibility of being able to carry firearms. There are very few people in this country who are actually talking about an outright ban on guns. Nobody is going to abridge folks' Second Amendment rights in that particular way. though. You know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, we are unique amongst many other sort of developed countries in the world in having that Second Amendment because other countries saw the problem of guns and they limited them because they had the legal and constitutional tools to be able to do that. But we could also talk about, on the other side, about the discussion about policing. It's really easy to talk about law and order as a catchphrase. And one that's racially loaded, and we can go back more than 50 years and prove how racially loaded uh, this is and can go back even farther than that to talk about the stereotypes that existed about certain groups, particularly blacks, um, being more prone to criminality. But the discussion about policing reform cannot be easily reduced to the um, moniker of defund the police. Um, And I think, you know, we need to be critical of activists who adopted that as their refrain without message testing it and without considering what the implications were of that, because they put themselves into a corner where it could easily be painted that way. If we look at public opinion, one, if we look at the Democratic sort of, you know, party and Democratic members of Congress, the majority of them don't support defunding the police. And if you want to point to the squad, I can name them like on my fingers. Right. It's not that many of them who might say stuff that would sort of fall in that the vast majority of Democratic lawmakers, including members of the Congressional Black Caucus, don't support defunding the police. But they are advocates of reform, and they are thinking about how to try to balance those interests, the need for justice with the need for safety. And that level of complexity is what we're witnessing when we're looking at things like the New York City mayoral election, where Maya Wiley, the progressive candidate, actually came in third place uh, you know, yeah. with ranked choice voting. So, I mean, you know, just this idea that, like, particularly black folks are all about, like, getting rid of the police. Yeah, there are some people of many races who support that type of abolition, and even they aren't talking about anarchy. Um, But, like, this is a much more complex issue, and there's a lot of heterogeneity in terms of thought and in terms of what people's preferred strategy is. And we would do right to acknowledge that, but it's always easy to oversimplify it in order to make points.
1: Edward, jump in.
4: Well, uh... The, the, the you know andre has a, has a good point in that uh, you know that the issue of crime is is one of complexity and and that bumper sticker answers on either side of the political extremes uh, are really uh, are really uh, should, should be tossed aside, and we'll start taking a serious look. Uh, Jim's point that he raised a, a few moments ago about how crime does not uh, recognize any kind of political boundaries. Uh, that we have rising crime throughout uh, our society right now, and it has to be dealt with seriously. Uh, The fact of the matter is concern over crime is not limited to one party or another. Uh, The question is which party will be able to better address it. One of the best rebukes, for instance, uh, on uh, those that were advocating for defunding the police came from a, a city councilwoman in Southwest Atlanta. Said that's about the dumbest idea I've ever heard, and she wrote an extremely good column in the AJC about it about a year ago. The fact of the matter is, folks uh, are concerned about crime, whether or not they leave, live in a leafy suburb of, of Atlanta or they live in a in a apartment complex in in a in a, in a uh, demographically challenged area. Uh, everyone is concerned about crime, and the question is, who is going to come forward with serious answers? to deal with the problems. Yes, you need to have uh, police presence. Yes, you need to have uh, a serious look at, uh, at at taking on those folks that we are afraid of. I've all, often sort of said the, the core of, of criminal justice reform, and I was a big part of that as well as Mary Margaret when we were both in the General Assembly, was to distinguish between those people that we were mad at versus those people that we were afraid of. The folks that we were merely mad at, we need to come up with alternatives to uh, to jail. But those folks that we were afraid of, we need to find a, a place for them in, in in a jail to get them out of the way so they don't hurt people, and and that therein lies the the problem. Uh, some of the policies uh, that uh, it, that uh, elected officials have gone down in the last few years, I think, have been counterproductive in terms of of wiping away that that. That, that line that I just mentioned between those two different groups and have uh, encouraged um, uh, a rise in crime and have, and have tolerated it. Now we're at a point where it's intolerable and now we need to be taken very seriously. How do we do two things? And, and I think you can do two things. One, hold police that act wrongly accountable, but at the same time provide people with public safety in all quarters of our communities, uh, so that they can walk the streets. Someone uh, in Southwest Atlanta ought to be able to walk the streets safely, just like someone in Buckhead. Uh, you know that that's wrong either way, and and that doesn't lead to a to a good society. So we we need to be taking seriously these issues, uh, and and have people of good faith coming together and putting aside their political parties, putting aside. Any other uh, arguments? And so let's just see what works and what doesn't work in terms of stemming this, this pandemic of crime that we're now seeing.
0: I agree with most of what Ed said, but the, the frustration I have is Georgia General Assembly will not examine a red flag law that would take a gun away from a mentally ill person, will not examine an issue of a domestic violence perpetrator taking that gun away. We, we are not doing basic things we're not doing basic things that our constituents, Republican and Democrats, support. That's an extreme uh, frustration for me. And uh, a discussion about defund the police or the people we're scared of doesn't move us forward to having real serious discussions in the Georgia General Assembly where our solutions, a few of our solutions, a few things that we could do to help could possibly come forward. Until we have that discussion, we're just going to be talking about uh, philosophy. None of us believe that children should have guns. None of us believe mentally ill should have guns. None of us believe criminals should have guns. That's the discussion. How do we deal with that discussion? The Peachtree Gateway, the Peachtree crime, Gateway crime against the five month pregnant woman happened in my district. I had an extensive discussion with Mayor. Ernst in the city of Brookhaven is in that part of my district. Uh, Horrible, horrible, horrible crime. He was a mentally ill career criminal who was living in a homeless encampment in Brookhaven, which is where Ed's former home is. And we have to deal pragmatically with management of the violently criminal people, and we're not doing so in an effective way.
1: So, uh, Jim, uh, I can't help as we talk now but think back to the days of Governor Zell Miller and when Democrats across the country were the ones who were really talking about not, we've got to get tougher on crime. Here's just the lead of a column in the Washington Post back in 1994. (laughs) In the crime bill debate, all politics is vocal, said Coleman McCarthy. Little more than craven cynicism twinned with simplism is at the core of the current get-tough-on-crime-cure-alls. Politicians mouthing street-right-cure-out mantras are being outdone by Governor Zell Miller of Georgia, who demands life and no parole for two violent crimes. So, how fascinating. I mean, it's... It, 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 that's just... I bring that up because it seconds what Andrea said and really what everybody has said, which is... Uh, Crime becomes a political football dealt with in the most simplistic ways possible, and we're not getting very far
2: Right we haven't uh, we uh, So far the Democrats have avoided uh, uh, Zell Miller's pass path. Uh, I think the I I think the 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 debate over mass Incarceration has really fundamentally changed that and I don't think I don't think that they can go there Uh, I do think that there is a uh, you, you do have uh, uh, Joe Biden, for instance, uh, uh, this week uh, is emphasizing the money that's in COVID relief for ex- expansion of law enforcement and, and addressing other problems. And, of course, he went back to the uh, to the background issue, uh, to the, the 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 gun purchase issue. Uh, issue the problem I think in, in this country and you see it underlined in Atlanta again with all these with, with these juveniles who have access to handguns, it's this tremendous underground uh, market for firearms that the US has now uh, and and Georgia in, in many ways has been a lot of the source for those guns of uh, uh, Florida
1: and uh, Georgia, uh, South Carolina. Okay, well, there's no question that uh, uh, violence in, in the streets is going to be certainly the biggest issue in the mayor's race here in Atlanta and moving forward in the 2022 cycle, one of the biggest issues that Democrats and Republicans will square off against one another on in many races across the country. Let's get to our final break of the show. Back with more in just a moment. <laughs> Welcome back to Political Rewind. Quick note, we're going to be talking about the pandemic uh, again tomorrow. Where do we stand on vaccines, uh, the campaign to get more people uh, vaccinated? What are the variants likely to do to people who are either vaccinated or unvaccinated and the like? All that and more. Uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio will be with us, as well as a panel of some of the best public health journalists we could find talking with him about that. That's tomorrow. Um Jim, uh, we don't have as much time today as we need to talk about this, but I promised yesterday we'd at least get to it. Um, the, uh, we know that, that the Biden administration has earmarked some four plus billion dollars in aid to uh, African American farmers for debt forgiveness uh, as a way of dealing with a, a century. Of uh, discrimination against African American farmers. And now there's a federal lawsuit to block that, calling it discriminatory. Now, but here is the new information that really uh, puts this into a sharp context. Uh, the USDA itself has now released figures which show that um, in, in just the past uh, a couple of years, the agency has granted loans to only 37% of black applicants compared to 71% of applicants who are white farmers. And um, that statistic alone uh, gives us a, a worthy subject for conversation here. Black farmers have just not been t- treated equitably.
2: No, no, and it's it's been going... Look, this has been going on since... Uh, uh, since uh, the 1920s, uh, when you've had when you've had uh, uh, black uh, black owned uh, farmland, just it's 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 just dried up, uh, and part of this, you know, it's it uh, much of it is racial. I, I, you cannot you, those those figures may, uh, are are just far too clear, but you also have something else happening in the agricultural uh, community, and that is a uh, 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 uh big egg. Is is getting a lot of this money? They have the money. They they have they have the operations that can kind of plow through the uh, the federal bureaucracy, fill out all the forms, uh, uh, turn turn maybes into yeses. And and most uh, most black farmers, uh, you would consider uh, uh, small farmers, they don't have that kind of infrastructure, and and uh, it it's i was really disappointed by by the lawsuit that uh, to, to to stop this loan pro this loan loan fix is what it was uh a result of several lawsuits over decades um, under one song? other
1: quick figure there usda has also said that in a, a a grant program that they have to help producers get through the coronavirus pandemic farmers of color received less than one percent of the payments even though they make up 5% of all U.S. farmers. Go ahead.
3: Yeah. So, um, you know, I'll let the lawyers on the panel correct me about this, but this seems to be an issue related to strict scrutiny. So I haven't read the case, but what has been reported in the news suggests that the judge's logic in this case was that because it specifically said we're going to forgive black farmers specifically, that it doesn't look narrowly tailored to meet a compelling state interest. And so just uh, just the fact of a disparity wouldn't be enough there. And that reflects 40 years of sort of changes in jurisprudence that make it harder to do racially targeted remedies under sort of the guise of the fact that race has been used in inappropriate ways. And so we should always be suspicious when race is used, even if it's meant to help people or to be benign. So the structural issue that you're pointing out there with respect to big ads might mean that the remedy for this, at least as far as what the Department of Agriculture could do is to change the rules for qualification to make it easier for smaller farmers to be able to access funds in the hopes that that would actually help to narrow that particular gap. And so I'm not here to justify a sure short scrutiny, but that seems to be sort of what the judge was using in this particular case.
0: I spent my uh, first, uh, spent most of my twenties working in rural Georgia before I went into private practice in my 30s. And my rural Georgia legal services practice frequently was about helping people keep their land, whether it was a small farm of a black farm owner or whether it was uh, someone who'd gotten a loan from ag for a rural housing development. Um, keep helping people keep their property is also a part of my current practice of estate management, where the heirs' property issue is so prevalent. So throughout my law practice, combined with my political career, it's been a very significant front-burner issue. The, the Pigford versus Blitman case that has been so extensively reported on uh, based on a class action of, of discriminatory practices from ag has is, is been a settlement that's not totally been successful, obviously. And uh, the new lawsuit to kind of stop the Biden efforts to reach out to help these farmers, black farmers, keep their property, it seems to me a political uh, action that doesn't really match with the settlement of the original Big case. Um, forgive me for those details of those, that litigation, but the basic principle is keep, helping poor people keep their land, keep their house, is a very significant policy issue. And President Biden is right to address it.
1: Edward, it appears to me that one of the things that would be interesting is to see how the state of Georgia stacks up in terms of this aspect of all this. Apparently, the real problem lies at the local level, where county farm service agencies are the agencies who actually take in loan applications and then process the loans. And apparently, uh, the uh, the advocates of more help for African American farmers suggested that's where the real discrimination is playing out. I wonder what the situation is here in Georgia in that respect.
4: Well, that is that uh, that's an interesting question, and, and we will require some drill down to, to to determine it. I think Andre Gillespie has done a pretty good job as a lawyer on this group and sort of uh, sort of outlining the legal issues. And um, and quite frankly, she's done a whole lot better job than a lot of lawyers that I've heard over the past uh, in terms of describing the difficulty. The fact of the matter is, uh, you know, we have an enormous problem in this country. We have a, a long legacy of discrimination against uh, black farmers. We have a long history, quite frankly, of discrimination against smaller farmers and favoring big ag. And, uh, you know, what are the solutions that we can reach to be able to to help all small farmers uh, be able to cut through the red tape that Jim was describing and be able to have same access to federal funds. I think that's, that's something that uh, both sides of the political aisle need to be get on board with.
1: All right. Uh, we're going to watch how that plays out. Uh, Jim Galloway, uh, I think we should talk to your old uh, colleagues over at the AJC and suggest guess they might want to dig into what's happening with the farm service agencies across the state of Georgia when it comes to loans.
2: I'll pick up my phone
1: as soon as we as soon as we're <laughs> off there. I I may get to the G P B news team before you do that. All right, we are completely out of time. I'm sorry to say for today's political rewind. Uh, Edward Lindsay, thank you. You're here. You are trying to take a little vacation, and we have pressed <laughs> you into service. And you were gracious enough to join us. Enjoy your time and off. And thank you for being uh, with us. Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, you know we always love having you on as well. And You too, Andre Gillespie. Thanks for being here for Political Rewind today. Galloway, I hope things go well for you. I'm going to turn on the Tour de France tape in a minute and read how your daughter's been writing about it. Uh, But that's it for us for Political Rewind today. We're back with another edition Uh, tomorrow. As I said, Dr. Carlos Del Rio will be here to talk about the pandemic. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay safe wear your mask. The variants are out there. And if you're not going to wear your mask, you'd better have a vaccine. See you all tomorrow.